Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast where we talk about new books in media and communication. I am your host, Marcy Maserato, Assistant Professor of Digital Communication at Georgian Court University by the beautiful Jersey Shore. Today's guest is Yves Citon, Professor of Literature and Media at University of Paris 8, and the topic of our conversation is his latest book, Mediaarchy. Welcome, Yves, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Marcy, for the invitation. Wonderful. Um, so, uh, can you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about your professional and educational background to start? Okay. Um, I am from Swiss origin in Geneva. I spent about 30 years in Geneva studying mostly literature. Then I moved to the United States of America, the beautiful city of Pittsburgh, PA, where I taught for about a dozen years. Also literature, mostly 18th century French literature, but I got interested in all kinds of other things while I, went, while I was in Pittsburgh. Then for different reasons, I came back to Europe and I ended up in France, in Grenoble, which is a town sort of in the Alps. And now I have a job in Paris, always at the university, always in um, literature departments, but I've been interested in all kinds of things uh, apart from literature. So, for instance, I studied, uh, I did a book on 18th century uh, political economy, the the emergence of the theory of uh, economics in France in the 18th century, or another book on Spinozism, Spinoza philosophy in the 18th century also. But uh, slowly I got interested in issues of media and issues of attention. The the previous book uh, that was translated for me in English uh, was called The Ecology of Attention, which was uh, a way to try to understand what is attention, how uh, we can direct it, how we are conditioned to pay attention to a number of things, and not only what type of economy uh, is developed around that, because uh, attention is a commodity that's being sold by Google, by uh, advertisers, and so forth, uh, but also what conditions it. And in a way, uh, now you invited me, you were kind enough to invite me for uh, another book translated into English under the title Mediarchy, and I see the first book on attention and this book on mediarchy as looking at two sides of the same sort of interface. What is our interface with the world? And uh, so first, from the point of view of, of the subject, if you want, what it happens to my or to our collective attention. And this is more what uh, environment are we uh, immersed into? What media environment are we immersed into? And that would be uh, mediarchy. And what inspired you to start writing this book specifically? Was there an event or something or what what kind of flamed that passion further for you? Thank you. That's in a way that's a long term frustration. Um, I'm interested in politics, but I never can fully uh, adhere uh, to uh, political actions and discourse as they are set uh, around me or my friends and organizations to which I belong, because I've always been very much aware of how much what we call politics depend on the type of, uh, usually we say information 
information. I don't very, very don't I don't like that word information. So maybe we can talk about it later on. But let's uh, call it this way. What type of news? What kind of uh, of data we get from the world? And our political agenda or our political discourse or political ideologies? I've always felt are very much conditioned by the type of news that come to us from the world. And for me, thinking about media is sort of a prerequisite before uh, launching um, political debates or political action. First, we should be more aware of how our opinions are formed. And I think studying media, as you know, because it's also your, your passion and your and your what you teach. So studying media is studying what is sort of intermediary between, again, our attention and the events of the world. And this intermediary, very, very often, it is as if it is transparent. We uh, raise consciousness about the issues or we have indignation about this happening in the world and so forth. And by paying attention to the media itself, to the intermediary, I think it's so it's very necessary to maybe do politics in a, in a, in a more clever way. So that was a long-term um, sort of frustration on my part. And I've been lucky enough to, to be able to read a few books and discover people and so forth to try to to uh, gather all this in, in this book. Uh, thank you. And I first, I have to, I have to say that I really love your book. Thank you. And I think, um, yeah, of course. And I, I think I, I love it for two reasons. One, because there's, you draw on a lot of voices that are, are very, very familiar to us, uh, those of us who study uh, and read and research media, but you also really present that information in terms of saying, well, we have to have a different dialogue now, right? We've been having, we've been talking about media in this way, um, and now it's there's you. You present a, a a fresh perspective on how to really talk about media and politics and this kind of convoluted issue of do we really live in a democracy? And of course, you're making the argument that we live in a in a mediarchy. Um, so I really I really appreciate that from from a, a scholarly standpoint. Thank you. Um, as as I was, of course, yeah. And, and just this week, um, I was uh, teaching an interpersonal communication course where we, we talk about media ecology. So we're talking about uh, Neil Postman and Roland Barthes and Marshall McLuhan and Edward Said. And this is, um, and Stuart Hall. And this is an undergraduate course, um, but I really like to challenge students to really get ideas from so many different thinkers to understand the kind of politicizing lenses that are at play uh, when we create and consume the media. True, yeah, right? very true. And one of the sort of paradoxical thing for me to be speaking with you about, about this book here is that for me, uh, originally, it was very much an idea of importing uh, these media theories, which have been mostly developed in Germany, in the UK, in the United States, and in France. There has been, of course, there are media studies, but they're very much more oriented towards sociology or towards a school of people that I really like, also who call themselves mediologue, mediology. Uh, but they were uh, they didn't pay much attention to uh, say 20 years of research between or theory between uh, Germany and uh, and the Netherlands and Scandinavia and the U.S. And so one of the first goal of my book was to import these uh, concepts that I thought were brilliant and very interesting and fascinating inside of France. And now the book has been translated. I felt very fortunate 
fortunate that the book was translated. And it's a little bit weird for you who have grown in this uh, intellectual milieu to be reading my book, which was supposed to be an import in France, uh, into France of these things that I really uh, cherish in what I discovered in the US or what I can know from Germany and so forth. So there's sort of a uh, back and forth movement between the continents uh, that we are living now. Yeah, and, and it's it's a great point that you make that because that was one of my questions for you is that who was your intended kind of uh, cultural or global audience? Because you, yeah, as I mentioned, you you really do um, talk a lot about different uh, scholars, like U.S. scholars, um, and so it it def that I think that's perhaps why it feels so familiar to me because throughout my graduate my PhD, most of who you talk the individuals you talk about are are. are people that very influenced mm -hmm. uh, my work and my research. So, um, and so that, yeah, so that, that's what I was uh, wondering, wanted you to expand a little bit more on the idea that, that, uh, so the media context in France, um, although there's been some, some great thinkers uh, that, that have come out of that, um, you felt that the way that it's talked about in other places like the UK, US, Germany, that it just wasn't, uh, being represented in, right. in French culture, French media studies. Why do you think that is? Oh, there would be a lot of a lot of different reasons. I think first is sort of an arrogance in the French uh, intellectuals because you have French theory, we had Deleuze, we had Lyotard, we had Foucault, we had all these people. And so French people tend to think, and again, remember I'm Swiss, so I can say things about the French and, uh, and that's okay. But uh, French people <laughs> tend to think that they understand theory better than anyone else. And uh, that's okay if they remain a among each other, that's okay. That was the case. It's not so longer true of the newer generation. Uh, so for me, uh, it was, for instance, uh, somebody like Marshall T. Poe. I know that Marshall T. Poe is, I don't know if he's the founder, but he's uh, is the one who also organizes the, the New Book Network. And he, right, and I really, is, his yes, book, yes. I mean, I quote a lot of his <laughs> yeah. book at the beginning of uh, one of the early chapters, because he gives sort of a synthesis of a history of communication. And what I think is very interesting for me is both uh, the distance that uh, American or German scholars take towards issues of communication, not so much sociology as theory, sort of one notch higher up, or the fact that uh, sort of very counterintuitive uh, concepts are raised. And I think for me, there was a sort of a translatio study. You know, people say, oh, first there was the Greek world. I mean, in, in the Western world, there was the Greek philosophy and so forth. Then it came to Rome and then it moved around. And I think French theory has sort of lived and is living on in American university in a much more vivid way than in France itself. So for me, it's trying to be to have one uh, foot on both sides of the Atlantic and try to address to French people these things that I think they don't know enough and maybe to return to the US a sensitivity because I've grown with Deleuze and uh, Derrida and Lacan and all these things. Uh, and I think that the take I, I take on some of the issues, especially in media archaeology, because I'm a literary person, because I've studied a lot the, the 18th century, um, maybe I can bring something different to what's being uh, discussed in the U.S., I hope. But, uh... Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I, I do, like all of these kind of heavy-hitting French uh, scholars, they, they definitely do have a strong presence in, in academia in the U.S. Uh, I, I, 
as I mentioned just this week, mm. I was talking about Roland Bart and semiotics and talking about, um, and I'm working on a on a project about um, kind of looking at uh, stereotypes in television and using Foucault right. as as a lens. So I think in, in some ways it's it's kind of taking these theories and uh, developing a right, new right. discourse with them, um, something that is applicable to the media rich environment of, of 2020, which is different than when it was originally written. Um, same thing with with Marshall McLuhan, where there's there's certainly and, and as you mentioned, and I think even as Poe mentions that there's there's a lot of academics who um, don't dismiss McLuhan, but kind of contextually place him in history a little bit differently because he didn't really answer questions mm-hmm. concretely. He didn't give solutions, right? You can't necessarily debate with what, what he says. He says things that are um, kind of like cookie cutter right. mottos, you yeah, know, yeah. medium as the message and things like that. But there's, yeah. So, but we're still in, in, in and as you do great, like beautifully in your book is, is really weaving this into a more contemporary right context about what it means to right. really look at and also media, maybe one right? thing that i was trying to do is to um re uh, not reassess because it's not a matter of assessing but just reuse uh, these concepts and these sort of prophetic uh, slogans or inspirations by marshall McLuhan or friedrich kittler or these people who are a little bit enigmatic uh, not just to toy with them or not just to do communication uh, science and so forth but f- to apply it to political uh, uh, issues and again the book is called mediarchy as you said earlier uh, i think the first chapter or whatever it's about democracy and mediarchy they're just one basic statement from which i start and it's not so much a statement about uh, communication or about science of understanding how messages go from point a to point b but it's a, a message about the the organization of our society so mediarchy says oh we think we live and we say it we each other and it's not totally wrong to say that we are in political systems that are called democracies and every once in a while now it's going to happen in the US in a few months people citizens not just everybody but citizens are called to vote for Mr. X or Mrs. Uh, Z. Uh, And yes, it is more democratic than it used to be in different regimes in different times. Uh, And yet thinking that our political regimes are democracy is an illusion because again, it considers as transparent these intermediaries that are the media and putting explicitly uh, the social and political power in the media itself. It's both a commonplace because we all know that media have power, but trying to develop that in its implication, I think this is basically a more a political message than a message about a theory of communication. Sure. Yeah. I, I actually had a, a student make a similar argument where uh, I had assigned a, a video that talked about Noam Chomsky's um, idea right. of, the, of manufacturing consent and the mass media machine. And the student was very passionate about uh, the, this idea that in, that in the United States that we're not a democracy, that things are not democratic, that despite a lot of people believing it is. Um, so I, I will, I will, oops, I will have to recommend your book to him. And, and again, as much <laughs> as I really respect and love yeah. uh, Chomsky, uh, what he does in manufacturing consent is very 
much closer to what uh, people would do in uh, in France. It's more sort of a sociological approach or to see who controls what, what type of messages go through. Whereas for me, the inspiration of Kittler or uh, or Yussi Parika or, uh, or people like Alexander Galloway or Eugene Thacker or um, uh, Mackenzie Wark, these people put more emphasis on the sort of the technological uh, conditions uh, through which we, we work and the economic conditions linked, intrinsically linked to uh, these technical conditions. And for me, that's the next step. As much, again, uh, great, thanks for Chomsky for doing all the things he, do, he done. And that's always important to do that. But I think we need to push it to another level. And this is where uh, media theory in Germany and in the US, I think, goes further than just a critique. My book is not a critique of the media. Uh, the media don't exist. There are a lot of different types of mediations and uh, understanding these different layers or types of mediation. That's what I try to do in my book with the fourth, with the fourth parts. And, and understanding the technicality of it is just as important as uh, criticizing the ideology beyond that. Right, absolutely. Looking at more of the, if I may say like a practical component of how this actually looks like in a, in exactly. a real yeah, environment yeah, yeah. and how we live it. Right. Yeah. Um, and you do mention uh, media ecology in your book. And is that, um, is that how you, you see this in terms of looking at a media environment? And again, there's importance in looking at the sociological kind of critique of it uh, and the power structures, but as you mentioned, you want to take it a step further um, and how, how would you or how would you want the world to look like or even academia um, to kind of really think about media studies, whether it's an undergraduate or research? Because um, you lay that out here in your book. Um, but are there is there something specific that you talk about that you think is is just really vital for uh, across media studies, across cultures to really get to that more environment driven, political, economic consequences of what it means right. to be, quote, uh, the mass this media. This is what I was uh, alluding to earlier, to briefly, in putting the, this book, Mediarchy, in relation to the previous one I did, which was the ecology of attention. Again, that's the economy of attention, not just the commodification of attention, although this is very important, but thinking in terms of milieu, thinking in terms of environment, of surrounds. Uh, and for me, it's very uh, important to think in terms of ecology that doesn't deny the reality of economics. We have to understand economics, and it's very important to study it, but economics is now pushing us to uh, to the edge and to the brink. Economics, capitalist economics, is burning our planet and destroying our, our, uh, our milieu uh, where we should live. So uh, a critique of the economy uh, based on ecological consideration uh, I think both if you look at how we um, pay attention to the world or don't pay attention to certain things and how uh, the media, again, not just Fox News and uh, uh, the Washington Post and so forth, but our cell phones, but uh, Facebook, but uh, telegraphs in the older days, but uh, letter systems in the 18th century, uh, mail system in the, in the 18th century, etc., etc. How we have to understand different layers, consecutive and successive layers that have built up upon 
centuries and centuries to reach the point where we are now. And we cannot just have simple solution. We need to understand the archaeology of it. We need to understand the, the novelty of something like uh, a platform or something like the cloud. And again, that's why my book is a little long. It's about 300 pages because you need to enter into the specifics of different media and the superposition of these different media in order to understand the complexity of the power structure that then uh, pushes people to vote for Mr. Trump, for instance, uh, four years ago and hopefully not uh, this year. Yeah, there's, you know, the different and it becomes so much more complex now because we what and as you mentioned in your book, you talk about what does media really mean versus a medium and, a, you know, apparatus and the mass media, um, because when we look just at the history of that, it's it's changed a lot. And what it means now right. is not really what it meant just a few years ago, because it's so different and every even even every social media platform is exactly. different. They have different rules. They have different um linguistic Absolutely. Uh, yeah. norms that you use, right? Exactly. Even, even within the design itself of, of an app, right? We don't really have freedom to use Instagram the way we want because it's it was developed for us to be Absolutely. confined within yeah, yeah, yeah. the way they want and, us to use it. I would say this <laughs> right? is, the, this is um, how I, I build the book. Now you ask, uh, what, what, uh, what media is, what media does, what media means, you just uh, asked. Uh, well, I organized the book in four different parts or four different layers. And in a way uh, that I worked in French because it was different ways of uh, spelling the word media. Now in, in English, we had to find uh, other things with a, the beautiful uh, translator that I have. I was very fortunate to have Andrew Brown, who's a major translator, and I was very, uh, really grateful for the beautiful job he did. So we had a first part on media, uh, which is whatever uh, technical apparatus apparatus is used to affect us at a distance, whether it's a geographical distance, like the telegraph, you can uh, learn something that happened uh, uh, or that has happening very far away, or in a time distance, uh, when we read a book, somebody wrote a book or printed a book years uh, ago, and we can still read it. So media, in the most general sense, uh, again, what means media? Media can mean just any type of device, any type of any type of uh, Technical tools can be very simple, like a pen and a paper, or can be very complex, like a server and a network like the Internet. But these are all things that uh, allow us to fold, I like this expression, folding time or folding space or folding agency. It allows to hear people even if they're not here. It allows to see people even if they're dead. Uh, And it allows to act upon uh, people and things at a remote or in the future, etc. So that's the most general definition. Then there is uh, the second part is about mass media. And usually when we talk about the media, when Noam Chomsky talked about the media, he doesn't talk about how letters were written in the uh, 18th century or male, he talks about, again, the Washington Post, New York Times, etc. And this is a specific form of these apparatuses, of these media, uh, insofar as they uh, create, they generate publics. 
And part of the, the, the book is based on this uh, philosopher, this French philosopher of the 19th century called Gabriel Tard, who is the first one, as far as I know, that uh, brought up the notion of a public. And he said, oh, there's always been crowds. There's always been people uh, gathering on the, on, the, on the street or in front of city hall. And these were crowds. But public are only produced by media. It's when you have books, when you have printed books, then when you have newspapers, then when you have radio, television, and so forth, then you have publics. And what elects people nowadays, or what selects commodities to buy and to make people rich, uh, it's not crowd, it's not individual, it's not people, it is publics as they have been shaped by the media. So that's the second part. Then the third part, and again, what means media, and that may be more original, uh, is to say, oh, in French, and I think it works in English, but maybe not so well, medium, when you say medium or mediumly, or uh, it's, it's, um, it's something magical. It's something uh, irrational, apparently, like witchcraft or something that we don't understand. It's a form of agency that we do not control only by technical means. And the intuition here is to say whenever we use media, whether it's just a telephone or whether it's a, it's a pen or whatever it is, uh, there is always more than what we control. We don't know what's going to happen. It's the power of our, uh, it's our communal agency, the power of communication or our common agency that works through a telephone or through a television or through an image. And we don't control it. So it scares us and it raises ghosts and it raises anxieties and so forth. And this is inherent in media. And finally, the, the fourth part of the book is to talk about meta-media and meta-media. I take, I don't invent it. I take from uh, Manovich and so forth, who takes it from, from other people to say, oh, there is something very specific over the last, say, 30 or 40 years, which is digital media. And the fact that now something like a smartphone, it both simulates all the media we could have, we could call, we could do telegraph, we can send letters, we can write things for us, we can, so whatever we could do with Previous media, we can do it with a smartphone, so it makes it special. It's sort of a meta media because it's an imitation simulation of every other phone, every other media. But also, it has certain very specific properties, in particular, that it can uh, record our attentional gestures. So there's a whole new way of communication, new way of being immersed in the media because of the digital media, which I call meta media. So to answer your your question, what media means, I think it should mean at least these four different things. And as long as we don't distinguish these four different things, we don't know what we talk about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it, it's very complex. And I think that's another thing I appreciate about your book is that you really go into these different uh, uh, types of media and then um, kind of talk about uh, how they relate to to how we can do and, and really analyze a mediarchy um, and take it to that step further, right? As you mentioned, of, of going beyond just the, the kind of sociological uh, perspective of how media works or like the mass media or the media. Um, now, in part two of your book, when you when you talk about under that kind of that titling of mass media, you talk about decolonizing mediarchy. And you mentioned um, kind of like this, that a, a radical revolting is really should be at the top of the progressive political agenda, but that it really should be um, seen as, as kind of this mode of decolonization. So can you talk about that uh, a bit more um, 
in terms of how how that relates to your your issues of uh, ecology that you were mentioning earlier Uh, i think the way uh, we use uh, we it's we collectively we as a society we as a period in history so the way we use media now and this is directly linked with attention and attention economy uh, is very much extractivist we try to extract things uh, with these tools that are media we try to extract some information from the world we try google and uh, facebook try to extract attention from our bodies and our minds in order to sell that attention to advertisers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, So uh, decolonizing um, media means uh, trying to uh, not get rid of, because it's not possible, but try to minimize uh, or to diminish the part of extractivism in the way we use media and we deal with uh, each other attention. It's a long movement of colonization from the the 16th century on to today, where Europeans with a certain frame of mind, with certain expectations, with certain desires, with certain fears and so forth, have expanded over the whole planet, let's call it colonization, uh, destroying people and doing all kinds of evil things and doing interesting things also sometimes in in other places. But this movement of colonization, extracting wealth, extracting profit from uh, whatever they could put their hand on, uh, is now reaching a dead end. Um, Global warming, uh, the loss of biodiversity, uh, just the infestation of plastic, all these boomerang effects of uh, modernization and uh, development uh, falling back upon our head. uh, We realize that something uh, has to change, just it's a matter of survival. Uh, So in the media, I think it's the same thing. We need to decolonize the way we use media. We use media to take power or to hold on to power or we use media to, again, to extract wealth or extract profit. And we can do so many wonderful things with something like the internet. And for a few years, the internet was a place where people would just post things and exchange things, and the commodification was much less pregnant. The surveillance was much less pregnant. So I don't believe we can go back in time. So I'm not nostalgic, or I don't think, oh, we should go back to the 90s or whatever, everything was fine. No, there were tons of problems there. But we should be more aware of this extractivist and colonizing uh, attitude that we have in Europe for uh, five centuries, that now it's a dead end. And I think that in media studies, we can also work towards a sort of freeing ourselves or getting out of this dead end of extractivism and uh, colonization. Great, thank you. Um, and moving on to the next section where you talk about um yeah that's the the crazy one part three where you talk about the medium um and which i (laughs) yeah (laughs) which i was like why (laughs) we're we're talking about uh with occultism and i'm you know and i and i when i was started reading that i go i as you mentioned it because it's translated i think it has um you know it it took me a second to be like oh right a medium as in like a medium in voodoo or in you know the occult right and being that medium of somebody who's a medium to to talk for the dead kind of thing so i so i thought that was such it's it 
to me, it was almost like, wow, that's really obvious, but at the same time, it's not. So, so that was very fresh and new for me to think about that and go, well, that actually really like, thank you, Eve. That makes a lot of sense to me, actually. Um, so that's so super fascinating. And I, and I very much appreciate that you really, yeah, that you really brought in this, this kind of perspective and, and looking at what medium really means, which here it often means medium as in like television and film and, and that. Uh, and so you, you kind of brought into the, to magnetizing mediarchy. So can you talk more about that and kind of where perhaps that, that inspiration or that idea clicked with you Ooh, first you um, the to, question. That's to my write this particular chapter? chapter. Weirdest, so it's, uh, I'm, I'm not surprised. Okay, well, thank you very much for... Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's my, it's my favorite, too. Yeah. So, uh, it's not that original for me, because uh, there's a whole... Um, it's not a discipline, it's just a field of experimentation called media archaeology, uh, with people like Yusif Parika, who wrote this fantastic book called What is Media Archaeology? And it's been trendy now for, I say, about 10 years or so, uh, to play with the occult. Uh, now, it is playing with the occult. I'm a fairly rational person. I don't really believe in ghosts. I don't believe dead people can talk to me or whatever. So I'm as rational as I guess I should be. Uh, and yet, I think it's very, very, very important to understand that there is something more than natural, something more than rational, something more than can be controlled whenever we use media. And there can be different ways to, to approach that thing. The first one, maybe the most intuitive one, is that through media, through a cell phone, through a television, through a radio, I can hear the dead. This never happened. Uh, before the 20th century. The fact that people are dead and you hear them and they speak and you hear their voice. Uh, not only that, but after uh, movies, we're starting and talking movies and so forth, we can uh, see somebody talking. Or now, I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, guitarist Frank Zappa, so I can listen to Frank Zappa and I can hear him on YouTube. I can see him on YouTube doing these uh, guitar solos. And for me, that's just purely magical. I mean, the guy's dead. I'm really sorry the guy's dead. He's terrible and so forth. He died too young. And yet the magic of his improvising with a drummer and a bass player and him on the guitar, I can live. It's, it's, I mean, we, in English you say, it's, oh, it's alive. So it's not alive because it's not being performed now. But if you didn't tell me that he was dead, and I could very much believe that it's life. And in fact, it is life. The, the life of his soloing, the life of his inspiration is there right on my screen, and I'm exposed to it, and I live it. So the guy is alive. Frank Zappa is alive whenever I watch him play uh, a guitar solo. Uh, so in a way, that's not so so weird because, uh, again, I, as I told you, I spent half of my life in the 18th century reading people like Rousseau or Denis Diderot, and Rousseau talks to us. I mean, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the great author, or Jonathan Stern, whatever, whoever author you want, uh, in a way, the way they phrase their sentences and so forth, uh, it does, they, they do talk to us as if they were alive. So that's the power of media, whether it's a book, but even more when it's a film, when it's a, a captation on a good sound and so forth that I can now have on my on, on fancy technology. Well, it brings back the dead. 
And uh, people were afraid of that at the beginning of new uh, media. Whenever new media comes, uh, people are, are afraid of its power because it's, it seems impossible. Uh, but we get used to it. So oh, we know, for example, he's dead. Okay, we're just watching a recording. Uh, we should remember how magic, how amazing so these things are. So that's the first sort of phenomenological approach of it. Dead people are talking to me. They act in front of me. And that's weird. Uh, I think there is something much deeper to that, uh, which is, as I was trying to allude uh, earlier, but I did it much too briefly, which is to say uh, media are always um, common. There's no just media just for myself, between myself and I, or between myself and, and one person. That's very rare. Usually it's the power of the common. It's the power of the collective uh, through languages, through things that we agree upon, through whatever. And and the power of the collective, uh, the power of the common is all always so much bigger than my personal power. Uh, so when I post something on Facebook or when, and I must say just as a parenthesis, uh, I'm not on Facebook, I'm not on any, on Twitter, I'm not on any of these uh, social networks uh, just because I'm lazy. It's uh, Email is already too much for me to cope with. So I study uh, the social media, uh, just as I study uh, the whole uh, writing in the 18th century, as something exotic with a lot of distance. So in a way, it disqualifies me to say things about uh, Facebook because I'm not using it, I'm not in it. On the other hand, it gives me a certain distance. So whatever I say about Facebook or Twitter, just put it with a, with a grain of salt because I may be talking about things I don't know. Nevertheless, uh, when I post something on the internet, uh, I don't control what's going to happen to it. I can very well know why I'm doing it. I can know why I framed that picture, why I did that sentence and I phrased that sentence and I posted it on my site or whatever. But what's going to happen to it? How it's going to be uh, the object of a meme, how it may become viral, how neo-fascists may just use that in order to commit a crime at the other side of my country or the other side of Europe. It totally escapes from my agency and my power. And that's very threatening. And that's very... Um, the, this is something, an anxiety that comes, I think, with media that usually we repress, but it's this both black magic, uh, white magic, um, uh, fear, hope, uh, marvel. It's marvelous uh, what media do. It's scary what media do, all that people say now about conspiracy and so forth. I think it's inherent to uh, media. And uh, we should put much more emphasis on that because we tend to deny it or to ignore it. And then it comes back to haunt us, like when uh, Donald Trump uh, is in campaign. All these crazy things, they have so much power. And we don't, we just laugh at it because we don't understand how dangerous it is. And uh, I, I won't speak too much on that, but uh, for me, something like terrorism, Whenever we talk about terrorism, whenever we uh, have news that mention terrorism, I feel uh, very dramatically that we do not control at all what we're doing, that journalists talking about the, the last terrorist action, they promote terrorism like a wildfire. Uh, and that the way we deal with it, it's totally uh, unaware and unconscious of uh, the power of media. So certain things, just like fire, you don't play with fire. You can be very careful with fire or with gas. 
gasoline. Uh, I find the news, uh, the way we are affected by certain news, uh, violence, crime, all these things in the 20th century and now, we see how uncontrolled it is, how it can be taken by some politicians or by businessmen or whatever who want to sell us an ideology or sell us different products or sell us prisons or sell us whatever. And they can very much use an image of crime in order to produce effects in society that are total count, totally counterproductive for us as a collectivity that is in their interest. And yet if we knew more how magical, how demonic, how mediumnic uh, medias are, I think we would be much less naive in the way it is used and abused by politicians and business people. And how do you, what would be your suggestion for consumers? How how should consumers deal with um, the way they consume media? Because you talk about like zombifying mediarchy and and kind of the cliche idea that media turns us into zombies because we're just kind of spoon fed information and we're passively like sleepwalking through the advertisements and, and whatever the mass media, such as, you know, uh, terrorism and, and, and so many different types of topics. Um, so do you have suggestions f- from a, from a, like a consumer standpoint to how to combat that? Yeah. Well, the, right, right, right. The first thing I would say is, uh, let's question the very notion of consumer. I think the, 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 the category of consumer is very important and we should use it properly when we think of markets, when we think of people going to the supermarket to buy this toothpaste rather than that brand of toothpaste, uh, then you can talk about consumerism. Why are we pushed to buy a certain number of products? Uh, what is the role of brand and so forth? And that would be consumerism and consumers and we can think of that. Uh, the way we behave on social networks or my attitude or my relation to television or to a newspaper, it's much more than consumer. Yes, if I subscribe to a journal, to a periodical, uh, okay, I'm a consumer because I pay so much every month in order to get my my paper. But uh, very often now in the media, things are free. Uh, I don't have to pay to get uh, search uh, results from Google. I don't have to pay, at least not in money. Of course, I pay with my attention because uh, Google sells my attention. But it becomes so much more complicated than what we used to in thinking in terms of consumer that we need, uh, again, to specify things. And it's not very much as a consumer that I'm exposed to the media world. Again, apart from once a year when I write a check to the New York Times or whatever when I want to subscribe, uh, it's it's a very different nature. So yes, Google and Facebook and Fox News and all these people, they address me as a consumer, again, because of the commodification of attention. They try to sell my attention to people who sell us things to buy. So my role as a consumer is always lurking somewhere. And in a way, uh, media, the, the victorialist class, how uh, Mackenzie Walk calls them. Okay, I really like that Mackenzie Walk, the, the New York um, uh, philosopher and theorist, he uh, advises to see class relations uh, in the 21st century. Uh, yes, there are capitalists and there are workers. This has not been abolished, but we should also pay attention to the struggle, the class struggle between what he calls the victorialist class 
class, which is the class that owns and controls the vectors of communication, these intermediaries that I was mentioning earlier. The media are, uh, in first definition, the most broadest definition, sort of intermediaries. They are cables, they are uh, studio recordings, they are uh, servers um, somewhere in, in Iceland or wherever. Uh, so people companies and people uh, own that and control that. Uh, this is a vectorialist class that uh, is getting extremely rich over the last 20 years. They're becoming amazingly rich by controlling vector and selling our attention. Now, the new one of the new class struggles is between this vectorialist class and what um, Mackenzie Walker calls the hacker class. I would have another term for that, but it uh, doesn't matter. It is the people who feed the internet with photos, with news, with ideas, with uh, films, with whatever. Uh, and there is a new class struggle to, to understand uh, here. So this again, it's, it is, we, we are targeted as consumers because this vectorialist class lives of, of selling our attention uh, to advertisers, but we are much more than that. We are also hackers in terms of creators of content, if you want, and we can become hackers in a more restrictive sense. That is, we can maybe play with the softwares or play with the games that we are fed, even if it's very often uh, difficult to enter into the black boxes because, uh, again, the media are built more and more in terms of black boxing that we can't really access uh, how it is working and how it is how we can affect the it's it's functioning uh, so i would say uh, first let's beware of being uh, reduced to the category of consumer uh, and then maybe just this very fact would open uh, doors to behaving in other ways and to beware of the consumer in us. For me, that would be a very, a very um, common uh, lesson. Uh, we, our world is collapsing economically, ecologically, politically. It is collapsing because the consumer has been made king. And only the consumer is made king. And we, again, we extract all kind, we exploit all kind of resources in the world without caring about future generation, without caring about the consequences, because we have been reduced to consumer. And cheap is good. And what we should be aware of very generally, and in the media, it's even truer than anywhere else, that of the price of cheapness. Cheapness comes with a price. You don't pay it as a consumer, but you pay it as uh, living in a certain environment. You pay it in terms of uh, then you're sick and you have to be taken care of. Uh, so the price of cheapness, I say, I think it's a very crucial concept. And in communication, it's even uh, more uh, important to, to, to remember that. Thank you. That's a, those are really great points that you bring up, especially the, this idea of, uh, of, of attention being a commodity, which you, um, I know you, you mentioned that being um, your previous book that, that kind of, um, and then influenced a, a little bit of what you talk about here. And then just the idea that we are, we are paying for something, right? <laughs> whether, whether or not it's right. free um, is, uh, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is a billionaire for a reason, though, we, we exactly. don't, as consumers, quote unquote, right? We, we don't pay for his products. So whenever I throw that out for students, I was like, think about that for a second, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, exactly. So, and that kind of leads me to the your your final section in the book where you talk about meta media, which you'd mentioned that um, uh, you draw a little bit on on kind of Lev Manovich, who who does um, research and, and, and works uh, with with big, big data. Um, 
and you talk and you in on chapter 12 you talk talk a little bit about um digitizing mediarchy so can you talk more a little bit about that um and kind of how um how you feel in how you feel that this idea of meta media really plays a part in the mediarchy right uh, so I gave uh, one part of the definition of metamedia earlier, which is uh, digital media that can simulate all pre-existing and all other other media. With a smartphone, you can make films, you can record interviews, you can send letters, etc., etc. Okay. Uh, now there are other features of these metamedia. Again, think of a smartphone, uh, but maybe a personal computer could work in a, with a webcam or whatever could work in in a similar fashion. Uh, now. For one thing, a smartphone concentrates all of your effective life. Most of your connection with the world is concentrated through your smartphone. So it burns your hand. It is normal that your smartphone just burns your hand. It's so hot because all your love, your hate, your fears, your possible next job, uh, your girlfriend or boyfriend leaving you, uh, whatever, it all comes through there. So this concentration of uh, things, usually you would receive a letter. I mean, usually, say again, in the 18th century, you would receive a letter every other week from your lover if uh, he or she was in another city. Uh, now, every second you can do that. But through the same medium, you will learn that uh, something exploded in Lebanon. And you may have a friend in Lebanon, and you may be afraid that your friend has been injured or killed by this explosion in Lebanon. So every second of the day, you have something that... Uh, affects you. And affect, I think, is, is a very important notion that I put uh, at the core of, of, of what I try to do. Uh, we shouldn't think of media as vectors of information. For me, information uh, circulates within computers, within uh, cables, within uh, fiber optics, whatever. Uh, what circulates among us human beings uh, are meanings, and more um, radically even, there are affections. It's things that affect us. Uh, most of the things we read, we see, it's not just information. It's something that either makes us afraid or makes us joyful or makes us curious or whatever. So it works on our emotions, on our passions, on our affect. So I would say what circulates is affection. And this meta medium, which is a smartphone, it concentrates a density of affection that is totally unheard of in the history of humanity. So no wonder we become distracted. No wonder we become crazy because of these things. We, we're going to get used to it. I'm not, I don't think it's the end of the world because of that, but it's going to take a while to get used to, the, to just the hotness of this device. Now, there's a third feature of meta media, which to me is maybe the most important one. And, and we're just starting to understand the consequences of that. And it is uh, to say that what is new, what is really new in the, this meta media, again, take your PC, the screen of your PC, your keyboard, or your smartphone, doesn't happen. What is very new doesn't happen between the screen and your eyes, or between the, the, the device and your ears. It's not the images or the text or the, the sounds that it gives you that is new. Again, I said it's a simulation of previous media. We used to watch films. We used to talk on the phone. We used to exchange text and letters. That's not new. What is new is what happens behind your screen, what happens between your device and distant servers. And what happens there is that there's a constant collection of data about what? About your attention. Our attention, our attentional gestures are monitored every fraction of a second. 
And uh, Amazon knows how much time I spend on the page of that book versus the page of this other book. And um, YouTube knows how much of that video I, uh, I looked. And uh, Facebook knows how, how much time or how, how I clicked on that image, etc., etc. So whatever uh, attentional gesture we do, which is usually so far with our fingers, with our digit, okay, with our fingers, when we click, when we move, when we, when we do something with our fingers, soon it will be just with our eyes. Our eyes will be enough to trigger uh, a change of screen, etc., etc. But all of these attentional gestures, they are constantly collected. And that's the main novelty in Metamedia. This didn't happen in cinema. When you go and see a, watch a movie in a classical uh, movie theater, you can sleep through the movie and the guy who made the movie or sold it to you won't know whether you slept or not. Uh, here, uh, with Metamedia, uh, the people who send us the content Again, these are not so much affection, um, information as affections. Uh, they send us affections and they can see in real time what are the effect of these affections on you. And they will, because they live uh, of selling our attention, they will always maximize what rips our attention, what attracts our attention. Uh, so we are, we live in a world that, uh, I, I, when I was talking about attention, I would say we live in a world full of uh, police, um, how do you call it, the sirens? No, you say sirens? No, with the, with the, um, the fire, uh, fire cars, they have the, the, the noise, the loud noise. How do you call these things? Sirens, yeah. Sirens. Yeah, they like this, the, the ambulance, yeah. Right. What, what is ambulances? What, what are these things? These called saliences. Salience is something that you cannot ignore. That's why ambulances and fire trucks have this. It's so loud that you cannot not pay attention to it. Uh, usually it was restricted, again, to a certain type of cars in emergency, etc. Uh, now, with Facebook, with these metamedia that can monitor our attention, uh, the people who sell us, and the victorialist class who sell us this content, they want to optimize our, uh, our being attentive to it because that's what they sell. So they know how to select the things that attract us, that attract our attention the most. It's as if constantly we had sirens popping up uh, to make sure that we pay attention to it. And it is exhausting and it leads to burnout and it leads to all kinds of, of psychological problems. But I think the novelty, what we have to understand is that this is made possible by the digitalization of information, by the digitalization of the, the, the data that are collected about our attention and by a feedback loop that allows the vectorialist class, content providers, the people who select what will end up on our screen to give us exactly uh, singularly, with each person, it can be different. Each or profile uh, calls for different uh, input. Uh, and so this is the, the total novelty uh, in the history of mankind that has only started a few years ago, maybe two dozen years ago. And we have no clue how it's going to change sociality, how it's going to change just the brain, the, how our brain works, how we talk to each other, uh, what time we have to take care of each other. All this uh, with this meta-media burning our hands with affection, uh, simulating all kind of other worlds that can come through us uh, through these screens and monitoring our attention 
to sell data about what attracts us the most and what is most salient to capture our attention. This is a total new world that I don't think it's it's bad in itself, but just we have to understand it better and and start controlling it through political measures. We can't just be each of us left with Facebook. We have to take political measures, new forms of regulations in order to, to change that. And and as you wrap up your book, you talk about, um, I think you, you kind of go back and talk a little bit about um, McLuhan and this idea of a media artivist and um, creating an anti-environment. Um, right. And is that really what you would like to see be done is just this, this, um, cause you, you basically say that your book is in, in some way, uh, an invitation to dive into this kind of anti-environment because we need to change our, uh, perceptions, right? So if we, if we have a, a new, uh, anti-environmental means of perception, we needs to be constantly renewed for it to be effective. Um, right. and, and is that, is that what we need to do? Absolutely. So the, the, the end of the book that you, you summarize now very nicely is to say, oh, there are two main directions in which we can uh, act, we can uh, change things. Uh, uh, faced with this uh, capture of attention, this commodification of attention, and this overall collapse, ecological collapse, that is the result of five centuries of colonization and modernization. And one way is, um, what do artists do with media? Uh, And what do artists do to us when they use media. And here I will just link to what I just said about this sort of feedback loop that pushes the vectorialist class to give us what we need, to give us what we expect, to give us what we crave for, to give us what attracts our attention. In a way, one one definition of uh, being an artist or artistic practices would be to deceive us or to disappoint us, not to give us what we expect, at least modern art and contemporary art, even that, it's to surprise us, not to fit our expectations. And so we live in a world that is made to trigger and fit our expectations so that they can be calculated and reproduced to sell our attention. That's if you want the consumerist part of it or the the commodification part of it, the vectorialist part of it. And artists, they surprise us. And here I play with the words in French, where you have um, surprise in French or in, in English, also surprise, a surprise, maybe you, you understand in, in, the, in the word, prise in French is to take. Uh, so uh, we are given data, we are given, data is what is given, so the internet gives us all kind of things, but by giving us all these things mostly for free, it takes, it grips our attention. And it takes it and runs away with it to sell it to advertisers. That's the way it works now. And that is dangerous. What do artists do? They surprise us. They overtake us. They overjoy us. They they surprise us in a way we don't know what to do with, with a piece of art. We don't know what to do with really new music. The first time I listened to Frank Zappa and his guitar solos, I don't know, I don't know if you were around or if you like Frank Zappa, but in the, in the 80s. <laughs> so in the 80s, he released that album. Just three, this was still good old vinyl. And there were three vinyls of just guitar solos. And usually I used to listen to Zappa to like the songs you sing along and their cool tunes and cool compositions. And then I buy Frank Zappa, it cost me a lot of money. I was a poor student and three three uh, vinyl, just guitar solos. He edited the, the the chorus and whatever. And oh my God, what is that? He just ripped me off. That's, that's it. And now of course, that's what I like the most in Zappa is this guitar solo, just the drums and the guitar solo. So he disappointed me, he deceived me. 
he surprised me with this thing, which to me was not really Frank Zappa. It wasn't, it wasn't really music that I wanted from him. My expectations were betrayed by him because he was an artist. So the first response is to pay so much more attention and give financing and funding, I mean, and understand that artists are crucial to our survival. Again, as you said with Marshall McLuhan, because they create anti-environment or anti-expectations or surprises. These are all different ways to, to say. Now, the second direction that we should move towards, and it's not one or the other, it's both at the same time, is the direction of politics, of regulation. Now, of course, a lot of people talk now about regulating uh, Facebook and regulating all these things, and I think it's absolutely necessary. It's tricky, it's not obvious, but a certain number of things we can do, uh, for instance, to, to consider attention as uh, a resource, as something that's the source of wealth, and to redistribute attention, to put in place mechanisms redistributing attention so that attention, collective attention, is not totally concentrated on a very small number of winner-take-all uh, type of shows or type of activities, etc. So this needs regulation, just like we redistribute wealth. Uh, people who are down on their luck and they lost their jobs, uh, we try to give them money collectively, even if in the US it's miserable, in France it's a little bit more civilized, so uh, you do have a few years of income in order to allow you to turn back and get another job or do something else. Uh, so we redistribute wealth to help people who don't have enough. We should redistribute, uh, we can redistribute means of uh, attracting attention. And in particular, there's one thing I think we should, it should be put at the, the very top of political agendas, which is to tax commercial, to tax advertisement and to draw money from heavily taxing advertisement in order to uh, fuel, in order to fund, in order to allow for other non-commercial forms of circulation, of news, of investigation and so forth to have uh, their place. Uh, so politics in terms of uh, retaking, reclaiming control over media that are now very much uh, in the hands of one victorialist class, which is abusing its power and its wealth uh, through this. So it needs to be uh, reined in, if you want. And this is difficult because you always want to uh, maintain liberties. You don't want just to have the state to say, oh, this is what you should listen to tonight and you all agree with that. Of course not. Uh, the, the challenge is very much an environmental challenge is to produce media diversity, just like you have biodiversity, just to to nurture and to cultivate media diversity uh, because it's just as necessary in communication as biodiversity is in the world. So that's one side, regulation and politics for bio or media diversity. And the other one is uh, treasuring the work of art and the work of artists that surprise us out of our expectations. Wonderful. Well, Eve, this has been a really fruitful and, and awesome discussion. Um, lots of things to, for even you've given me some um, some food for thought, which is great. Um, and as we wrap up, I'm sure our listeners are curious. Um, besides really stressing the importance that Frank Zappa is alive, which I think a lot of people are very very <laughs> excited about, um, is there anything you'd like to share that you're currently working on? Uh, any research project, creative project? Yes, thanks. Maybe. Uh, so there's always a, a gap, a delay in time. The, this book that was published uh, four years ago in France, uh, Mediarchie, and now it's translated in the US. So I've done three books in the meantime. But um, the one that I, I did most recently is uh, uh, is called 
generation collapse or note, collapse or note, just like internet, people who navigate uh, on the internet, uh, people who navigate on collapse. And it's a book that I wrote with, uh, so I'm about 60 years old, and it's a book that I wrote with a, a friend of mine who's about 25, 28. And together, we wrote this book on two generations facing the collapse of our modes of production, of a mode of consuming and so forth. And how can we uh, make sense of uh, the future uh, with, uh, in, on the side, if you want, on the side of people who demonstrate in the street for Fridays for Climate, people who demonstrate in the street for Black Lives Matters, people who denounce uh, the consequences of colonialism, whether it is uh, against certain parts of the human population or whether it is about our uh, natural surroundings. So this book, in a way, I see it as a consequence of mediarchy is, I think we are in a stage where a lot of things are already collapsing, and in a way, uh, African uh, societies have been collapsing for years since the Europeans went there and destroyed their social networks. Uh, uh, the, the, the societies have been colliding, uh, collapsing. Now it's our time, I'm afraid, to collapse. But it doesn't have to be the end of the world. I think certain things will be collapsing and we have to see what we treasure. Again, how we can uh, surprise ourselves uh, and reorganize uh, our societies in order to uh, transform this collapse, which can be something uh, horrendous and very frightening and hope that we can make something positive out of it. So that's the, the this latest book. Well, wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd love to have you back on the um on, on the show to talk about that or any of your other projects. Um, so anytime you want to talk more about your books that, um, thank you so much, Marcel. Yeah. And I must say, I'm, I'm very honored to be on the new books network because about half of the book that I'm quoting in mediarchy, I've discovered them through you guys, oh, through, uh, through your different, <laughs> I'm, I'm a compulsive listener to different, uh, to, to your different shows. And so often, I didn't know this author, I didn't know this book, and I listened to it, and I like it so much, I buy the book, and uh, so I've been fed by the New Books Network, so to be on it now, it's a great honor, and I'm very, I'm, uh, I'm very shy and very uh, very impressed by it. So thank you very much, Marcel. Of Marcy. course, right. I'm, I'm very happy that you're on here, and I, and I have no doubt that your your book, and hopefully this uh, this chat will will inspire others to, to read your book, and, and then... Um, and then we can certainly have you back on. Uh, thank you again for joining us, Eve. Uh, and thank you uh, to all of our listeners. And we will see you next time. Cheers.